Hello, and welcome to this edition of EMS Now Up Close. I am Eric Miskell with EMS Now. I am joined once again for our regular update with David Schild, the Executive Director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. David's out there pursuing their mission to educate, advocate, and legislate, right? So um, on behalf of the industry. So David, good to see you again. I look forward to these uh, discussions because you always kind of keep us current on what's happening in the industry and in Washington in support of our industry. So I it's always great it. to be here. Thanks, Eric. Good. Hey, listen, I wanted to start without before we get into all the legislative stuff with you were just at PCB West out in California. I think that's a good show out there um, run by a good colleague of mine, Mike Butow. Um, tell us, how was that for you? How was PCBA received out there? You know, this was our first show since we launched in 2021. Uh, Mike and the team at PCEA have just been tremendous supporters of our initiative um, and have always given us a platform to talk about the issues that affect so many people uh, in their organization and in our industry at large, as you do. And, you know, I was really um, kind of blown away by to see hundreds of companies, you know, in all sorts of different microelectronics verticals, right? Whether it's rigid, whether it's flex, whether it's specialty materials, um, you know, design. These were a lot of folks that I hadn't met before. I was thrilled to see that many of our members were there. A lot of prospective members that I continue to talk to were also in Santa Clara. But it was really educational for me to get to sort of see the state of the industry, the state of the technology, how much innovation is happening. And I was struck by how many people were curious as to our role and our mission. And it was a great opportunity to say, hey, there now exists an organization focused on the same sorts of public policies for substrates and boards as were advocated for by the semiconductor industry. So a good conversation and, uh, you know, kind of a fun couple of days in in the Valley. Oh, no doubt. Now, did you do a presentation as well, or did you just have do the booth and do booth? We, we had our booth for the first time. So, you know, a lot of business cards, a, a lot of these little green PCBA cards getting handed out. And, um, you know, a, a lot of folks that I need to follow up with in the coming days and weeks who want to know more about our mission. That's good to hear. That really is. Because I know that, the, you know, size matters in, in as far as the support for the initiative that, that you guys are, are advocating. So that's you're, great. You're absolutely right. The most important thing to us is that we grow our political footprint, which in turn will lead to more political results. And so I tell people we had five members when we launched in 2021. We're just crossing over 40 members this week, which I'm really happy about. But we have a long way to go. If you say there's 150 board companies in the United States, which are the numbers that we usually work off of, there is an expanded ecosystem out there for substrate manufacturers, for raw materials suppliers, for uh, the design, the assembly, the test communities as well. And of course, that's a value stream that is affected by the health of North American manufacturing. So from my perspective, there's all these folks involved in the board and substrate production who I think say, yeah, PCBA is, is rowing in my direction. And then, of course, there's the OEMs. There's the purchaser of circuit boards. These folks would benefit directly from the tax credit that we're pushing for. And ultimately, without their demand signal, without large companies buying boards at scale with uh, a supply chain focused on America, right, we're not going to really transform the industry and sort of get back the market share that I think we deserve. So, um, you know, we we met a lot of these folks uh, in, in Santa Clara and, um, you know, we're going to keep the conversation going with those folks. That's excellent. That's excellent. Now, you already teased about what I was going to follow up with, which is the 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 H.R. 3249. You kind of referred to a couple of the elements of that, but the Protecting Circuit Boards and Substrates Act. 
Give us an update. What's the status of that? Where do things stand? So, you know, we were fortunate to have bipartisan support when the bill was introduced for the second time. Uh, as I may have mentioned in previous conversations, the biggest difference between what was in the 117th Congress and what's now in the 118th is an expanded definition that includes integrated circuit substrates. When we talked to our members, when we worked in partnership with uh, the team at IPC, we realized that, you know, it was simply an incomplete conversation to talk about boards themselves um, and not, you know, discuss substrates, right? This three-layer stack of semiconductor, substrate, and board is really what gets you to a microelectronics ecosystem. And so we expanded that definition. We've been steadily picking up co-sponsors, which is great. You'll find that those members from places like New York, New Hampshire, California, Illinois, often represent uh, circuit board manufacturers, and that's great. We've got a long way to go on the co-sponsor front. And, you know, I'm very direct and honest with our members about some of the dysfunction that's happening right now in Washington. You're seeing discussions about a government shutdown. You're seeing an inability to pass appropriations bills. So we want to be clear that, you know, it's a challenging environment for anyone to go in and ask for money, to ask for tax credits. But the wind is at our backs in Washington on a, a couple of fronts, right? And the first would be a general sense that reshoring, de-risking, and decoupling from Asia is a good piece of public policy, right? We have a lot of committees energy and commerce, science and technology, ways and means, who all want to take up this issue. So when we go to the Hill and we go to the Hill every month, people are very receptive to having those conversations. And that's not a place we were three years ago. The other thing that I would say is a positive is that other policy outcomes continue to um, benefit the industry. And right, I, I refer, of course, to the Defense Production Act, which was turned on really for our industry in March of this year. And we saw $52 million attached to that for the Pentagon to spend you see the microelectronics commons program starting to hand out money for um, investments in microelectronics just in the last couple of weeks. Again, the Pentagon is using portions of the CHIPS Act to fund microelectronics development for its critical uh, applications, right? Some of the most challenging applications that we see chips and substrates and boards going into, right? Those that the Defense Department uses. Uh, and we're pushing with IPC for an additional $100 million tied to Defense Production Act funding. So that's that's a win, right? And it's a win that we continue to sort of um, keep sold. The other thing that happened since the last time we talked was the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. And that's really the reason PCBA was created. Three years ago, we realized, a little less than three years ago, I guess, we realized that you know the Pentagon was buying a lot of boards outside of the ITAR system through the commercial off-the-shelf technology set. And in fact, we didn't have secure and reliable supply chains for those boards. And a lot of those boards were coming from adversaries. And so what we've done in the NDAA is put in language, it's section 841 and 851 respectively, that says to the Pentagon, you got to have a plan by 2027 to actually uh, get these boards, get these microelectronics out of your defense supply chain, right? We, we've agreed we don't want them on defense products. So come up with a plan by 2027 to get them out. And what I would say is, Every year, that's got to be in the NDAA, right? 23, 24, 25, 26, or it won't happen in 27. So there's a real, you know, we won our victory and now we've got to defend our victory that's going to be, you know, part of our existence here for the foreseeable future. But that NDAA recently went out of the House and the Senate. It's moving forward uh, and we'll sort of recapitalize for this fight in 2024. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of rolling into the other legislative activity, too, because it isn't just one initiative, obviously. There's sure. all of these pieces, Bart. Now, you mentioned, you know, we were talking before about the, the the members of the PCBAA, but 
and you talk about the sponsors in Congress. So for the bill, for the uh, mm-hmm. for HR 3249 specifically, you know, is there a, you know, does size matter there too? I mean, you can't just have two, 10 is better, 20 is better. Can, what do you aim for there? You know, it's tough to say with the critical masses. I mean, certainly, you know, when you saw the CHIPS Act finally go over the, the line, you know, you had hundreds of lawmakers in the House and the Senate supporting it. Um, but it was a, a divided Congress on that bill. It was not universal support. And of course, that bill got very big for a time, $250 billion, and finally was passed at around $52 billion. We're looking for $3 billion and a tax credit, which we think creates the demand signal. Um, right now, our support is bipartisan. And I would say rather than a number of co-sponsors, the emphasis that we are pushing for is on a bill that cuts across party lines. There are, of course, big divides right now about our priorities between the Democrats and the Republicans. What I find is a universal understanding that it's good for our economy and for our national security to have the PCBs Act move forward. The challenge, of course, is how do you get this in motion when almost nothing is moving and and sort of by design, right? So um, you know, what we do is we go office to office, generally based on where our members are, we have the conversation and we appeal directly to the lawmaker to say, hey, join our team, join our effort. And of course, our original sponsors, Anna Eshoo from California and Blake Moore from Utah are assisting us in this effort. But um, it is, uh, it's a challenging environment, right? I want to be straight with you know all of your listeners, but also with our members that just getting the bill introduced is a success. So many ideas in Washington never come to the fore in, firm, in terms of written legislation. The other part of this, Eric, you know, and, and I'm getting into ledge process here, as we would say, but we got to have a Senate companion. So we are meeting actively with U.S. senators, um, you know, from all kinds of uh, states, uh, you know, across the Southeast, uh, across the Midwest, across the Mid-Atlantic, um, many of whom were chip supporters, many of whom have microelectronics production in their states, because we need a Senate companion to go with H.R. House Resolution 3249. And only when you have bills in both chambers we actually move forward, right? There was a house and there was a Senate version of chips, which we sometimes forget. So that's the other big goal, right? This year and into next year, let's get the United States Senate on board. Okay. Now you mentioned the CHIPS Act there too. Uh, it's about a year old now, right? So it's, aren't we hitting yep. the anniversary? We just passed that anniversary. So where do things stand with that particular? I mean, that was the first big movement, right. obviously. You know, what have we learned from that and what still needs to be done? So I'm glad you asked about this. You know, the CHIPS Act is um, sort of a template for what we think we need to do for the rest of the microelectronics stack. Uh, We're coming up on, I guess, 13 months since that bill was passed. The administration, not surprisingly, is doing a victory lap around the CHIPS Act because they've had groundbreakings for huge facilities in places like Texas, New York, California, Arizona, and Ohio, right? Battleground political states, great coincidences there, right? And I think that what you see is the CHIPS Department at Commerce is starting to put a lot more detail and sort of fidelity around how you get access to this money, right? It's not going to be 52 billion given out this year, starting to look like closer to 5 billion a year over the period of a decade. You're starting to see these FOMOs, right? F-O-M-Os, these um, documents that lay out how you go and actually apply for money. Not a lot of money is yet flowing because we're still seeing sort of version one, version two, version three of these funding opportunity memorandums. And they're they're detailed. They're 75 pages and they talk about what you have to do on a variety of fronts. And there's been some, um, I don't want to say pushback, but there's been maybe a cocked eyebrow or two from industry about some of these requirements. Um, I don't think anybody should be surprised that the government is zealously guarding the taxpayers' money and saying things like, for example, you know, if we give you this money to build a factory in the United States or hire workers in the United States, we don't want to find this money in Malaysia 
we don't want to find this money in uh, Taiwan. We don't want to find this money in the Philippines, which I think is a very reasonable expectation, right? But they're putting a lot of rules on this because the end goal, the end policy goal is a resurgence of American microelectronics manufacturing. Uh, and so it's slow going, but I still think we're in victory lap mode for, for the CHIPS Act. And we're going to be watching the implementation of the CHIPS Act, again, I think for the better part of the decade. Okay. You know, I don't mean to be a bit cynical here. So just, you know, you're the expert on the government process and all, but um, how much of it is talk versus actual action? When are we going to see kind of the, you know, the rubber hit the road kind of thing on, you know, and, and does the process diminish over time you know so you said 50 billion 53 billion maybe 5 billion a year does that get whittled away a bit through all the talking i don't think so i think the overall sum is protected you know there's two things i would say um the, the department of commerce is receiving what it calls statement of interests and they receive hundreds of those from many companies and it doesn't just include folks who are uh, covered by the CHIPS Act very explicitly, semiconductor manufacturers, there are folks on the periphery, right? There are folks uh, in the board and the substrate and the raw material spaces who have at least said to the Commerce Department, and we've held briefings there as well, you ought to think more broadly and you ought to expand your definition. Um, And I wouldn't set that possibility completely aside, right? Congress was very prescriptive when it said, we want to invest in chips. But I think that was when they didn't know there was an ecosystem. And I've had at least two or three now conversations with members of Congress who have said, why didn't we include boards and substrates when we did this bill? And I think the short answer is, I don't expect the TSMCs and the Intels of the world to look out for anyone other than themselves. They should do that. And PCBA didn't exist. So you know, the short answer is that we were formed in response to a first step that we knew needed a second and a third step afterwards. Um, I think it's fair to say that you know government programs don't always launch without hiccups. But I have been impressed with what Secretary Raimondo and her team at the CHIPS office have done. I think they are serious about doing this. There are, of course, real political, but also real economic reasons that they want this to win. Um, and of course, you do see, you know, construction is underway in places like Chandler, Arizona, in places like Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you know, the projects are more than shovel ready. They're, they're turning shovels. So the question will be, how soon do we get to maybe results that, that everybody can call real, uh, to use your term, and who else might want to come and be a part of the process as we right. get months and years down the road? So you mentioned the TSMC and the construction. So I just want to kind of, they had that recent announcement, obviously, where they've kind of delayed the implementation. Mm-hmm. And the reason being was they were not able to find what they considered qualified workers for those facilities. But it was interesting. It wasn't just for the Inside the, it was the actual construction as well. We did sure. claiming that there were not sufficient and uh, qualified people to build those types of high tech facilities here. The answer was maybe we need to bring over. I think it was fifty five hundred, you know, workers from Taiwan to help with this, and then also to train a workforce here that could be too. So, with that in mind, kind of, what's your sense of of the the qualified labor force within the U.S. in support of this and and what might still be needed there? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not a construction engineer and I can't speak to, uh, you know, pouring concrete and, and putting up structures. But I will say in terms of the workforces that run microelectronics manufacturing facilities, and I've met a lot of these folks as they build PCBs and, and substrates, um, that's a very highly skilled workforce. And we do not have enough of the people that we need writ large. Now, that's why I think you saw the president of Ohio State at Intel's groundbreaking in Columbus, and you saw officials from Arizona and Arizona State University 
you know, focused on what's happening in, in Arizona with TSMC. Um, I think the workforce problem actually cuts across the stack. I don't think you can say board manufacturers need signal integrity engineers, and that's a super like that's a very specific problem we have to solve. My guys would say, yes, we do need those folks. We're using a lot of H1B visas to to meet the capacity needs that we have. But as we get bigger, we're going to have to look into the talent pipeline that starts not just in college, but in high school, and even before that. And and STEM and STEAM education is going to have to start telling people um, we can build the next generation workforce. But, you know, and this is a discussion I had in, in Santa Clara last week, right? It took us 30 years to get into this problem. We're not going to get out in 30 weeks. We're not going to get out in 30 months. If you say today to kids in junior high and high school, there's a career in microelectronics, they're eight to 10 years away from entering the field. That's probably when we need to start having that conversation. I'm not surprised to hear uh, major manufacturers who have done most of their work overseas saying, uh, we'd like the workforce situation to be better. But I guess I'm pretty optimistic about America's ability to produce these workers if the demand signal is there. Certainly, if I was about to enroll a, a kid in college, I'd say, hey, maybe think about manufacturing. Maybe think about maybe think about high tech, right? Because we're putting up some of the biggest, most high tech factories in the world uh, and they're going to need you, right? Not for 18 months, but maybe for 18 years if you want to have a career in this field. Now, that's a great perspective. Thank you for those comments. And, and you touched on the whole demand signal. And I wanted to... You know, I think these things are creating, hopefully, the demand signals to do that. What is the hope then? I think those demand signals kind of trigger industry, and industry tends to respond in, in some ways with more investing, possibly greenfielding <laughs> new things, and, and also consolidation within industries, right? How do, yeah. how do, what's your perspective on how this will evolve? You know, when I was in, again, when I was at PCB West, I, I saw companies that had, you know, merged or acquired their their neighbors even in the last six months, right? We can all think of specific examples where that's happened. Consolidation is not is not going to stop. What I right. think we're seeing is with the CHIPS Act, like let's use that as a reference point, private money follows government policy. I think that you see by some estimates about $450 billion in investments that have come off the sidelines, I'm thinking about some uh, new uh, copper foil, uh, new EV battery, new new technologies, sort of tied, you know, uh, adjacent to the Chips Act in places like South Carolina, for example. Money that's come off the sidelines because people say, okay, the government is now in the policy business, the economic and industrial policy business. We can make an investment case. You know, our chairman Travis Kelly often says that he needs a demand signal before he can walk into his board and say, I need, you know, 40 million, 400 million to put up a new facility, to hire new workers, to, to buy tooling and equipment. We need that demand signal first. Then the economics case, the business case starts to exist. So in the same way that 52 billion in government money led to, as of, as of yet, 450 and what I think will be more money in the chip sector, I would be equally optimistic about what might happen with boards and substrates. The government puts $3 billion on the table for our companies, which obviously are much smaller than the Intels and the TSMCs of the world. I think private money gets off the sidelines and says, okay, great. Now we've got a customer base. Now we've got you know verticals that, that need this technology and need it produced domestically. Let's go ahead and start to capitalize. Let's go ahead and start to make the investment. Yeah, no, that's good. Listen, and that leads to kind of an issue you, you teased before, which is a whole reshoring. Call it what you want, reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, everybody's sure. shoring, right? So whatever that is. And um, how does that and how does it support those initiatives? They seem to kind of, you know, as as more develops here, more people might be bringing manufacturing back. I mean, it kind of they play off each other, do they not? 
Yeah, I think first the idea of the ecosystem is the conversation we should be having. And it, the idea that and uh, Secretary Raimondo talks about manufacturing nodes, I think she's using a synonym for ecosystem there because um, when you think about, okay, we're going to put a giant semiconductor facility in um, Chandler, Arizona, right? If you're in the Phoenix suburbs making chips, I think you should be making substrates. I think you should be making boards. I think you should be doing test and assembly. Maybe you yeah. should be doing raw material production, right? Precious yeah. metals, uh, woven glass, et cetera. Uh, why not? Why not situate those things together? The uh, analogy that I use is the automobile industry. When we were doing final assembly uh, of Buicks and Pontiacs and other cars in Michigan, where were we making the wiper blades? Where were we making the tires? Where were we making transmissions, right? Indiana, Ohio. Illinois. And the reason you had that automotive ecosystem was because it was mutually beneficial. It addressed a lot of logistical challenges. And I want to be clear, nobody in our business thinks that we're undoing a global economy, right? That's been 30, 40 years in the making. We went from 30% of the world's production to 4% of the world's production. What we do think is that a rebalancing of supply chains and your sourcing portfolio is probably what's healthy. Will that include Canada and Mexico. I think it will. Could it perhaps include more work in Europe? Absolutely. You're already seeing growth in places like Malaysia. I think if you were to say, hey, probably north of 90% of this work is in Asia and 56% of that is mainly in China, that is a dependency situation, right? It's risky. And I, the words that I hear a lot more are de-risk and decouple so that your portfolio truly is more balanced and the slices of that pie look a little bit more even. Yeah. And I, I've heard it said that, to your point, the more that the entire microelectronics is here, the more that reshoring will occur, the more manufacturing that will restore. Mm -hmm. To what degree, it's not going to be the high employment that it was 20 years ago, because it's at a different level. It's certainly more automated, more, yep. there's more digitalization going on, but that manufacturing is predicted to be coming back. And I think these initiatives certainly help uh, fuel that for the future. Yeah, we got to stay focused. I think this is, you know, the kind of thing where there's an inclination in Washington sometimes to pat yourself on the back, say we passed the Chips Act, we've handled this problem, time to move on to the next challenge. And of course, you know, when we walk in with uh, with green boards and people say, "What's that?" And you say, "Well, it's the rest of the story, right?" And yep. we've got more work to do. So I, this is not um, a fight that's going to be over anytime soon. And I want to manage expectations with your listeners and our members accordingly, uh, as I've talked about with other provisions. We got to educate, advocate, and then we'll legislate in that order. Because chips don't, chips float. don't float. That's exactly right. And I heard <laughs> that in Santa Clara from a few people. And the more we say it, the more it sticks. And, you know, uh, maybe if, you know, my dream scenario is, you know, the president says it in the State of the Union, a couple of members of Congress say it when they're on the stump next year running for re-election. Uh, I think that phrase has some real meaning behind it. And we're trying to get it to stick. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um we're heading into fourth quarter. What can we look forward to? You know, I think in the coming days and weeks, we've got to get past um, this idea of a deadlock over funding the government and keeping the government open, right? It, it really affects everybody negatively if we don't solve for that problem. Once we clear that hurdle, I think you'll start to see more conversations uh, about reshoring and manufacturing related legislation. Uh, I'm not going to say that I anticipate, you know, bill passage or something going to the president's desk this year. I'd be very happy to see the Senate take up this issue. We are talking to a lot of these committees and you're starting to see testimony from American manufacturers, both in field hearings and in Washington. So I would sort of watch your hearing calendar to see, you know, are we going to be or is our industry going to be talking about these needs? Um, I can't emphasize enough. The education hill hasn't been climbed yet. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, we don't see progress on, on the movement of bills. 
but we haven't talked to 535 members or everybody at the White House or everybody at the DOD about the nature of this problem. And I don't think you can expect people to act until they're educated. So a lot more meetings. Um, we're going to be at the uh, AUSA trade show, which is a sort of defense and aerospace focused show coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, I think we're excited for, for example, the Apex show that's coming up next year, PCB East coming into 2024. Um, and as members go home and visit their districts, you're going to start to see, I think, a lot more of them visiting PCB facilities. I know just in the last couple of months in places like Michigan, in places like Minnesota, in places like California, um, we have seen members walking through the production line and maybe for the first time realizing that there are dozens, hundreds of jobs in their district tied to PCBs and substrates. Uh, and that that makes it real. You know, that makes it real. That's a Christmas present. If you remember, a Congress walks through the facility and then goes, OK, I get it. You know, I point me it. in the right direction. How can I help? Right. And to that point, um, the support, what what listeners can do is to, is, well, if you're listeners in the United States, that is, is certainly they can reach out and uh, and uh, try to influence their local representatives to, to, to be supportive of these initiatives. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because we're running a series of uh, regional opinion pieces right now. Um, you still might have seen them in um, uh, the Hartford Current. Uh, in the New Hampshire Union Leader, uh, in the Orange County Business Journal, um, you're seeing all over the country tied to uh, some of our larger members, op-eds directed at the economic impact in Southern California, in Central Michigan, in Ohio, in New Hampshire, because I think we want local business and economic leaders to also understand that we're all focused on the giant facilities that the CHIPS Act is going to create, but let's talk about that ecosystem and the perhaps smaller and adjacent and subsidiary facilities that could be either newly constructed or expanded to service, you know, those those um, those chip manufacturers. So you're going to see a lot more of that around the country. Um, and again, we, you know, we don't just educate in Washington, right? We've got to reach out in state houses. We've got to reach out in mayor's offices, um, you know, at the at the federal and state level, because that's where, as you say, the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. David, I love these conversations. I always feel a little a little more informed after I get off of this. And I think our audience does as well. Um, thank you for your time. Let's do this again in fourth quarter, get some more updates because yep. this is timely and uh, encourage everybody listening. Please uh, show some support and a little love to the PCBAA and the initiatives they're advocating for on behalf of the whole industry. So always great to talk to you, Eric, and we appreciate you, you know, letting us borrow your megaphone for a few minutes to reach a broader audience and spread the word about what we're doing for the whole industry in Washington and across the country. No, all good. Thank you. And we'll talk again this year. Sounds good. Take care.